This morning we're continuing a preaching series on the Sermon on the Mount, and today we're going to be focusing on the salt and light passage. But before we get there, I'd like to start from a distance so we can kind of get a sense of the landscape around that passage. It was the hottest summer to date in Israel, and it just so happened to be the summer that my friend Austin and I were backpacking across the country. We had studied earlier that summer in Greece with the Adventist Colleges Abroad program and decided to travel a little bit on the tail end. We'd spent some time in the heat and thought that we'd acclimatized until we got to Israel. We were in search of a kind of authentic Holy Lands experience, so we decided to hike around the entire Sea of Galilee. The trail was part paved bike path and part roadside shoulder. And after the first day of hiking, we took off our shoes and were surprised to find that the soles were melted a little bit because of the sizzling pavement. We probably should have taken that as an omen that this was the wrong kind of spiritual experience that we were looking for and called a cab. But we decided to keep going. It's roughly 35 miles around the Sea of Galilee. We planned to take three days to make the trip, stopping at different sites along the way. The first night, we stayed at a beach where the demoniac story took place. Thankfully, the night went by without incident, uh, except there was one fire that started up on the hill above us, not sure exactly why, but the wind was blowing it towards Jordan, so nobody seemed to care about it. This is the area that's not far from Capernaum, Bethsaida. All that stuff is here in this place. Uh, The second day of hiking, we went up to the north end of the shore, where cool rivers flow into the Sea of Galilee. They're beautiful and very refreshing during a hot summer. After that second day of hiking and exploring, we made our way to another campsite on the map through a tried-and-true method of navigation called getting lost. There's actually a photo in here of us trying to find our way, and around the time the sun was setting, we found it, a little campsite right along the Jordan River, But there was one problem. This campsite was missing an important ingredient that we were very much needing, and that was a water spigot. There wasn't anything. We'd gone all afternoon hiking on just one bottle of water, and we were getting very, very thirsty. We were disappointed when we found that there was no water at this campsite. Of course, the river was right there, but our filter wasn't working, and we weren't quite desperate enough to drink the lukewarm water of the Jordan River. So we figured we'll be okay. On the map, we weren't far from the Mount of Blessing, the place where the Sermon on the Mount supposedly took place. And we figured there's got to be a monastery or a tour center or something where we can get water so long as we could find it. The next morning, we got up with our tongues feeling a little swollen and walked on a couple miles. The map wasn't very specific. It was just kind of a tourist map we'd picked up somewhere along the way. And so we got to a place where we had to make a decision. There was a road that turned off the main and winded up on a pretty steep grade, but we couldn't see anything indicating a monastery or a tourist center or anything like that. If we hiked it and we were wrong, we would have gone a mile and a half uphill in the scorching heat. It was already hot, and we were getting really thirsty at this point. Then my buddy Austin saw something that that he thought might be something with with a direct path up through an olive grove. 
we decided to go for it. Not sure if it'd be the Mount of Blessing or somebody's farm, but either way, we were hoping they would have some water. Thankfully, Austin got it right. We were there. We walked up to the guard station, and we asked between pants if he had any water. He opened up his fridge and pulled out this gallon jug of ice-cold H2O, and I have never been more blessed on a hill-slash-mountain in my entire life. This experience helps me visualize what Jesus' followers went through. Hiking through this hot lake area to catch a cold drink from the words of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It's so simple, yet so provocative. People have come, I've heard it compared to a campaign speech or, or a manifesto, Jesus laying out his philosophy of education, his philosophy of government, what his kingdom is going to be built on. It's a very important message. And we can imagine the setting. Matthew 5 describes Jesus' disciples there on the hill, looking out over the Sea of Galilee, listening to Jesus, and the crowds beginning to gather around them. You can imagine their curiosity to check out this new upstart from Galilee. What's he up to? What's his purpose? I can imagine the anticipation. This may have been something those people had even done before. Galilee, after all, was the place where religious upstarts would come from. And I imagine it's similar to the same thing we do today when a new pastor comes to town or a new politician. Size them up. Where are they going to stand on the important issues? Are they going to eat at the taco wagon or at the worm ranch? You want to know. You've got to figure this stuff out. And it's in this anticipation that Jesus begins to put things out there in a surprising way. He begins with a poetic blessing that lays the groundwork for the rest of his teachings, the Beatitudes. And even in his introduction, even in his blessing, he has a challenge. His first four words go after that Jewish idea that only the wealthy and the healthy are the ones who God loves the most. Blessed are the poor. He continues to build up the little guys, the simpletons, the commoners, the down and outs, the bullied, with his blessings. And then at the end, we find our passage for this morning. It all builds up into this, and as he begins in this, he's beginning into his take on the law. Like his blessing, he begins with the challenge. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. A few notes about this passage. First, its illusions. Second, who it's spoken to, and finally, when it's spoken. First of all, let's look at the illusion. There's a tradition of salt, light, and the law, the Torah, the Jewish Bible. When Jesus, sees the, when Jesus uses these metaphors, 
the people would have likely pick up on these allusions. In the Old Testament, the Israelites were instructed to include salt in their offerings at the temple. Salt was typically used to preserve food, so the idea of salt as preserving a sacrifice was the idea that salt made the sacrifice more enduring, better. Salt was even used in covenants and agreements between people. When two parties made this agreement, they would include salt to symbolize that the covenant was an enduring covenant, a long-lasting one, a, a better one. The rabbis around the time of Jesus even came to refer to the law itself as salt and light. Jesus' statement would have ruffled a few feathers because when he identifies salt and light, he wasn't referring to the law. He wasn't even referring to Israel or the temple or to any distinguished group of Israel. He's referring to someone else. It's interesting that Jesus even clarifies in the next passage. He says, don't worry. Just because the law is called salt and light by the rabbis, and I'm calling someone else salt and light, doesn't mean I'm doing away with the law. It was a big deal. Salt and light was a huge compliment that Jesus was laying on here. Which brings us to the second significant note about this passage, who it's spoken to. The scene is described as Jesus' disciples, who were then surrounded by other people. These are the ones who are within earshot of Jesus, you. Let's just focus on the disciples for a moment. A motley crew of dropout fishermen and tax collector types, these guys were the B-team of all B-teams. A whole squad of the kids who got picked last for kickball. These guys are at the core of Jesus' incredible compliment, salt and light. A few funny verses about the disciples. There's a verse that's found in more than one gospel that really encapsulates what this crew was about. It's a question that Jesus asked them in a moment of brilliance and probably a lot of frustration. The NIV translates it this way, Matthew 15, 16. Are you still so dull? I actually heard a pastor joking about this verse one time. He said that he'd printed this out and cut it and put it on his mirror. So every morning he'd wake up with this encouraging words from Jesus. Are you still so dull? Can somebody please write a devotional book based on this theme? Are you still so dull? This was Jesus' question for his salt and light. Really? This, these are the guys? Are you still so dull? And there were numerous other times when the disciples had standout verses. The times when they were continuing to squabble for who was the greatest. Of course, there's that statement by James and John when they asked Jesus in all sincerity, hey, do you want us to call down fire to burn up these people? Something about turning the other cheek just wasn't quite fitting in, but, but these were the guys. This was salt and light. There are other incidents with Peter and Thomas that stand out, but it's this dull group of disciples who very often miss the mark that Jesus identifies as salt and light. And, and notice when Jesus makes this statement. Jesus hits them with this title near the beginning of his ministry. This is his jumpstart speech, not his graduation speech. He declares his followers salt and light before all the screw-ups and blunders that we read about in the Gospels. It wasn't after they'd passed any sort of test or mastered any technique. 
Jesus empowers his disciples from the beginning with these words. You already are salt. You already are light. At the beginning of his manifesto, he titles his followers, the small, dull minority, as the capable agents who would flavor the world for his kingdom. I'm amazed at how much belief Jesus puts in people. Talk about empowering. I think if the disciples had even understood it at that point, what they were going to do, they wouldn't have believed it. But yet, Jesus believed it, and they lived into it. This would have been a huge boost for Jesus' followers. Disciple, of course, it means student or learner, but in Galilee especially, the system had a, a kind of specific sense to it. A rabbi was a rock star. They were the big dogs in the Jewish culture. People looked up to rabbis. People gave rabbis the special seats at their table. If you were called by a rabbi to be a disciple, it would have been similar to getting accepted into some kind of prestigious program, like, like the NASA sp space program or something. And a disciple was different than a student in one very special sense. A disciple wasn't just content to know what their rabbi knew. They weren't just studying to take a test. A disciple wanted to be who their rabbi was. They were consumed with a passion to become like their rabbi in every way possible. So these words from Jesus would have meant a lot. Have you ever wanted very badly to impress someone? A coach? A teacher? A peer of the opposite gender? A parent? Someone that you, that you really wanted to please? And how does it feel when that person acknowledges you or offers you some encouragement? Imagine how the disciples felt when their rock star rabbi looks at them and says that they already are salt. They already are light. It's as if he says, you guys are all here sitting and wondering how I'm going to change the world. Well, look around. This B team is my dream team. This has a radically different tone than what was said in Exodus 19 when God said, now, if you obey me fully and keep all of my commandments, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Jesus' approach is different. Not that the dull ones didn't have things to learn. It's just that their refinement isn't what makes them valuable to Jesus. He doesn't say, do all these things and become the salt and light of the earth. Get to work. He says, you're following me? Then you already are. Don't screw it up. You can be sure that this message has something for us. I believe that Jesus does the same thing for you and me. Have you ever been tempted by the thought, if I can just get a few more things buttoned down, I'm going to be such a better disciple. I can be a much more open Christian if I can just dot, dot, dot. You can pour some of this into your self-doubt. You already are salt. You already are light. Are you following Jesus? Then you're it. He didn't say work to make yourself shine. He said, let it shine. Ellen White put it like this. If Christ is present in the heart, it is impossible 
to conceal the light of his presence. Sure, you may still be a bit dull, but by Jesus' estimation, not mine, you are salt and you are light. It's not all easy, though. Jesus recognizes that humanity's evil by including a challenge as well. Don't lose your saltiness and don't cover your light. Without this challenge, we might mistake Jesus, this passage, these words from Jesus, as another excuse to be proud of ourselves. But notice, when your light shines, who gets the credit for it? It's your Father in heaven. When your good works show, it's God who gets the glory. Salt, after all, isn't salt for its own sake. I love salt. Put salt on almost everything. But I don't know anybody who eats salt straight. Salt's purpose is to make other things taste good. It's true for light as well. It has a real practical purpose in making things clear. Don't miss that point. The purpose is others, and the power is God. Just like it's written in John 3, all who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins are going to be exposed. But those who do what is right, they come to the light so that others can see God at work in what they're doing. It's God working in us to make us salt and light. Jesus' empowering belief in his disciples, even when they were so unrefined, makes me wonder if we'd be better off sometimes if we didn't know any better. If the mere fact of following Jesus is enough to make a, dull, a bunch of dull fishermen salt and light, then is following Jesus enough for us? Would we be better Christians, a better church, more salt and light if we just focused on being with Jesus and let go of some of the expectations we've attached to that? In a church setting, there are a lot of rules. There are a lot of ideas in any culture of what it means to be salt and light, of how you can and can't shine. Would it be better, though, if we, if we didn't know any better? If Jesus can call these people salt and light at the beginning and love them into it, can we do the same for ourselves and others? I've been inspired this week by a story of the runner who did incredible things because he didn't know any better. I'd like to close with this story of Emil Zatopek. I heard his story recently in the book Born to Run by Christopher McDougall. Zatopek came from a country where running was a bit of an anomaly in his day, Czechoslovakia. Like bobsledding in Jamaica before the movie was made, running in Czechoslovakia was just a foreign concept. There was no national history in running, no coaching. Emil ran because he loved it so much and he didn't know any better. As a conscripted soldier, he used to go for 20-mile runs through the woods at night with a flashlight in the snow in his army boots. When it was too cold to run outside, he'd jog in the tub on top of his dirty laundry. He could do sprints for hours, never timing himself because running is all that mattered for running's sake. He was uncoached, a true amateur. As a result, his style was very unorthodox. He used to train with his wife by playing catch with a javelin at the field and run through the woods in his boots carrying her on his back. Sports writers loved Zatopek. With his unusual running style and his fun-loving personality, when he ran, 
He used to let his bald head roll and wheeze loudly, earning him the nickname, the Czech locomotive. Writer said he ran as if he'd been stabbed through the heart. Another writer said this about him. He looked like a man wrestling an octopus on a conveyor belt. When asked about his style, he'd reply, I'm not talented enough to smile and run at the same time. Good thing it's not figure skating. <laughs> it was a hopeless idea for him to compete at an international level. Coming from such an obscure running country and background, but again, he didn't know any better, so he went for it. He came to love competitions. He loved competing so much, he jumped, to his, jumped into as many meets as he could find. For one stretch in his career, he raced every other weekend for three years straight, never losing a race. 69-0. As a racer, Zatopek loved and was loved by everyone, even his competitors, although he was known for being a bit of a chatty Cathy. Even during the race, he would chat with the guys running next to him, trying out what little bits of language he knew from their country. This would often frustrate the athletes that he ran with, and created one unbelievable memory during his most memorable race in the 1952 Helsinki Olympics. Since the running team was so small from Czechoslovakia, Zatopek ran in all the long-distance events that he could. He ran in the 5,000-meter and the 10,000-meter, breaking the record and taking gold in both events. And then, he'd never run a marathon before, but it was the Olympics, so why not go for it? His primary opponent was England's Jim Peters, and Peters held the current best time for the marathon in the world. The race took place on a hot day, and Jim thought he could take advantage of Zatopek's inexperience, so he started off at a much faster pace than usual, trying to exhaust Zatopek in the first half of the race. At the 10-mile marker, Peters was 10 minutes ahead of the record time. It was somewhere around this point, that Zatopek came up alongside Peters and asked him, Hey, this is my first marathon. Are we going too fast? <laughs> no, Peters lied to him. Too slow. Zatopek was surprised. You're sure it's too slow? He asked. Yes, Peters lied again. I'm sure. Peter's trick quickly backfired when Zatopek believed him. He said a quick, okay, thanks, and took off, leaving Peter's in the dust. <laughs> Zatopek went on to break the record for the marathon and win the race, being hoisted by the opponent teams at the finish line. Peter's, exhausted, didn't even finish the race. When Russia invaded Prague years later, Zatopek had a choice of playing along with the party in power or taking a janitor job at a uranium mine. He chose the janitor job and was forgotten by the outside world. There were still a few, though, who remembered Zatopek, like Ron Clark. Ron Clark was a, was a flashy young runner from Australia, and as McDougall writes, Clark had everything that you'd imagine Zatopek would want. Freedom, Money, elegance, hair. Ron Clark was a star, but still a loser in the eyes of his nation. He, he was known as the bloke who choked. 
He had the record for nearly every race between a half mile and six miles, but he never managed to win when it really mattered. At the 68 Olympics in Mexico City, he blew his final chance. In the 10,000 meter finals, Clark was knocked out by altitude sickness. To avoid the abuse waiting him back home in Australia, he delayed his return by stopping in Prague to pay a visit to the old janitor Zatopek, the bloke who never lost. Toward the end of their visit, Clark saw Zatopek sneak something into his luggage. Clark figured well, he must be smuggling some kind of message to the outside world, so he didn't want to acknowledge it right away. Zatopek then sent him off with a strong embrace, saying, because you deserved it. Clark found it cute and touching. The old master had his own problems, but still he took the time to give a grandstand hug to the guy who choked again. He later realized, though, that Zatopek wasn't talking about the hug at all. When he opened his bag, he, find, he found that Zatopek had snuck his 1952 10,000-meter gold medal into Clark's bag. McDougal writes, For Zatopek to give it to the man who'd replaced his name in the records book was extraordinarily noble. To give it away at precisely the moment in his life when he was losing everything was an act of almost unimaginable compassion. Clark later said of Emil Zatopek, his enthusiasm, his friendliness, his love for life shone through every moment. The runner who didn't know any better. You already are salt, Jesus says. You already are light. Don't lose your saltiness. Don't hide your light. May we shine like we didn't know any better. May we live up to the way that Jesus sees us and flavor this world for his kingdom. We're now going to have our foot-washing portion of the communion outside by the sculpture just across the road. There aren't any different sections for males or females. Everybody, the whole family, stuff set up out there for you, and afterwards we'll come back in and have the taking of the emblems inside.